You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Ocean Currents, a show that delves into the blue part of the planet and highlights ocean-related topics. We talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policy folks, users, etc., and learn about the mysterious ways this blue part of the planet functions and supports life. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, the first Monday of every month on KWMR. This show is part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1 o'clock you can tune in to hear about a local environment or economic topic relative to the West Marin area and beyond. Today is a bit of a potpourri of topics. I'm going to keep you on your toes today. Um, Last week, I attended the National Marine Educators Association Conference in Monterey and had a chance to catch up with some of the presenters. So I thought I'd share with you today some of the highlights The National Marine Educators Association is a national organization that works to make known the world of water through education and outreach efforts nationally and internationally. And it's an exciting time to reconnect, learn from others that are working to help engage communities and students and people of all ages in the understanding of our ocean and freshwater world. So here is the rundown for today's show. It's a bit of a mix. So stay with us. Um, In just a few moments, I'll play an interview with Carrie Morishigi, who is with the NOAA Office of Marine Debris. And she gave a presentation at the conference about marine debris and a lot of the misinformation that's out there. But what are the facts and what is some of the research going on? So you'll hear a little bit about that. Then we actually are going to take a little break and have a live interview with folks from the Algalita Marine Research Foundation who have been on the road for the last few months, Marcus Erickson and Anna Cummins have been bicycling from Vancouver to Mexico this summer, raising awareness about this issue and working in communities. And we want to hear a little bit about that and where they've been stopping along the way and some of the work being done in California. So we'll have a live interview with them. Then after the break, we'll hear the latest on what's happening with ocean literacy in the K-12 education world. And finally, at the very end, we'll hear an interview with Grant Washburn, who is a filmmaker, also local in San Francisco, and a big wave surfer, one of the pioneering surfers who surfed Maver- who surf Mavericks to this day. And I had a chance to meet him and interview him a little bit, too. So that'll be towards the end of the show. So we have a bit of a mix here today. We've got the uh, ocean literacy. We've got marine debris and surfing all together in one show for Ocean Currents today. So thank you so much for tuning in, and please stay with us. I'm talking with Carrie Morishigi from NOAA's Marine Debris Program, and we are going to talk a little bit about some of the information she presented today at uh, the National Marine Educators Association Conference and a session about the Marine Debris Program. Carrie, thanks for spending a moment with us today. Sure, no problem. First, can you tell us how you got into the field of trash and marine debris? 
It's a very exciting story, actually. Growing up and, you know, being born and raised in Hawaii, you see it all the time, but it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. When I was a graduate student at the university, um, a friend of mine who worked for the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College program had a position, actually, that would analyze data crunch about 16 years of marine debris data collected by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service volunteers from Turn Island in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And I thought, well, you know, I could do that. That would be some extra cash for a you know, poor graduate student trying to make it through college. And I took that project up. It turned into a two-year position. Um, I acquired more data from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And when I started working with the Marine Debris Program um, back in 2005, I actually took that data, recrunched it, added more data, and it's a publication now. It's a published paper in the Marine Pollution Bulletin, 2007. Wonderful. When did the NOAA Office of Marine Debris Program get established, and what are the major functions of the office? Sure. Um, the NOAA Marine Debris Program, we were established in 2005. We were formalized in 2006 when former President George W. Bush signed the Marine Debris Research Prevention and Reduction Act, which essentially created our program. And we work in those three areas, actually, the research, the prevention, and the reduction, both on a national scale as well as an international scale. We're really set up to be sort of a centralized hub for marine debris information across NOAA and the federal government. Um, so we serve in that capacity, and everything that we do, or most of what we do and why we get so many projects done, so many things done when we're only nine people, we work through partnerships. We have partners across the nation, both within NOAA, outside of NOAA, with industry, academia, private businesses, NGOs, um, and that's really how you know things get done. What are some of the research projects your office is working on or funding throughout our ocean? We have several new and very cool research projects. Um, one of the ones, or two of them, that I'm involved in, one of them is the at-sea detection of derelict fishing gear, and it's looking at ways to find, really, derelict nets, derelict fishing gear in the North Pacific Ocean specifically, um, with hopeful applications to other oceans of the world. But it's pulling in not only the folks that work in marine debris, who are the people that typically we've worked with in this issue, but folks completely outside of our box, the oceanographers, as well as sort of the techie engineers, the folks who deal with the different sensors and platforms and unmanned, you know, aerial systems and things like that. So pulling in all these different sectors, pulling them together, and having all of them work together to try and figure out a way to detect derelict fishing gear at sea with the intent to hopefully remove it before it gets close to shore and does the damage that it does. Um, another area that we're involved in, and I'm just sort of on the fringes of it, mainly in the outreach realm, um, is the area of microplastics and pollutants on plastics. Back in September of 2008, our program worked with the University of Washington Tacoma, and we hosted an international microplastics workshop where we pulled in the top researchers in all of these areas from around the world, from the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Australia, Japan, across the U.S. We pulled them together 
to finally figure out, you know, what is it that we know about the microplastics issue, about the ingestion of plastics, about this issue now emerging and really alarming the public of the pollutants, PCBs, DDTs, getting absorbed to these plastic particles and then ingested by the, these animals. You know, what do we know? Does it have food chain level effects? And what we found from that is that there is actually a lot that we don't know. So collaboratively, you know, we've shared information, found out where the research gaps are, but hopefully from then on, taking steps forward, working collaboratively with these international researchers and across the nation to really get at effectively addressing some of these big research gaps. Mm. What are microplastics? Microplastics. You know, there's, I don't think there's a formal definition for what constitutes a microplastic, so, you know, five millimeters or smaller, things like that. That's just a sort of a general term for small plastic bits, the type of things that are usually overlooked in beach cleanups because they're so tiny. These are pieces that usually come from larger pieces, broken up, fragmented, uh, or degraded into smaller bits of plastic. As you know, plastics do not biodegrade. They merely break down into smaller and smaller bits. So those are these bits. They also come directly from sources like um, the rotomolding, which is plastic powder that's melted into things like kayaks, to exfoliants used in a lot of our facial scrubs, to... Um, there was one other... Oh, the pre-production plastic pellets, otherwise known as nurdles to a lot of the general public, um, the form that plastic originates in before it gets molded into the things that you and I know of, like the plastic bottle. So you were talking how there's these gaps of information um, about these persistent pollutants. <clears throat> we know that these things are cumulate. They, other things like DDT and PCBs can accumulate on these smaller plastics, and they may be ingested by marine life. But are you saying we don't know much yet about the effect of bioaccumulation in the marine food web from that? That's exactly correct. Um, we know that these persistent organic pollutants are in the ocean. We know that they absorb to these small plastic pieces of debris, and we know that birds and fish, marine mammals, down to zooplankton, ingest this plastic debris. What we don't know is whether or not these persistent organic pollutants, these contaminants, come off of the plastic pieces into the bodies of these organisms once they're ingested, and we don't know um, the food web effects, whether or not these pollutants bioaccumulate. Those are a lot of the things that our researchers are looking at. Interesting. So do you know of any studies right now that are really looking at this, this transfer of pollutants through the food web, through different animals? Personally, I, I don't know. I, again, I'm on sort of the fringes of yeah. this um, research area. Um, I'm sure there are people who do know, but no, off the top of my head, I don't know. That's okay. That's cool. How about just the whole um, issue of watersheds and the transport of plastics through watersheds to the ocean? Is that another area that NOAA Office of Marine Debris is trying to find ways to help with? Absolutely. You know, marine debris doesn't just come from the coastal states or the coastal cities. It can come from landlocked states, downstream, storm drains, rivers, 
um, it all connects to the ocean. So those are definitely areas, watersheds, addressing the system from the ocean and coast all the way up to the land that we try to work in. And a lot of what we do is through outreach and education, that prevention of the marine debris from getting into it, even though you you know may dump it in Colorado or you know in a stream or on a street somewhere that is so far from the ocean, so far from you know your mind, it has the potential to make it to the ocean and become marine debris. One of the things you talked about today during the talk was really trying to clear up a lot of um, confusion that the media has created with a lot of terminology of gyres and patches and state sizes and whatnot. What can you just tell us about what we do know about that area in the Pacific that has been talked about in regards to the accumulation of plastics there? What do we know about that region? Well, the area in the North Pacific that you know, NOAA focuses on, and it's a known area to our researchers of concentration of marine debris. It's definitely has not a sexy name like the garbage patch. It's called the North Pacific Subtropical Gyre as its name, which is why I'm sure the media and others love to just call it the patch. Um, but it's not just the convergence zone that concentrates marine debris. Um, we now know that oceanic eddies, Langmuir windrows, these other oceanographic features, currents, winds, also concentrate marine debris. But because we need to hone down the area, because we don't have the money or the resources to study the entire North Pacific Ocean, you know, NOAA focuses on the subtropical convergence zone as a known area for marine debris accumulation. How about the uh, use of it by animals that are traversing the Pacific. Is that another area that they're trying to find more information on? Yeah, the convergence zone. What One of the things we use to sort of see the convergence zone with the satellite is the level of chlorophyll. So we look at satellite photos me- that measure and look at and can see the chlorophyll content of ocean water because this convergence zone kind of travels along with something else called the transition zone chlorophyll front, another quite unsexy term. Um, but yes, because there's a lot of chlorophyll there, there's a lot of zooplankton, there's a lot of fish, there are a lot of marine life in that area. And in fact, um, Hawaii's longline fishery, you know, a lot of our fishermen fish in that area just because it's fairly high in marine life. Interesting. You mentioned earlier about MARPOL, and that's a fairly young act. And what exactly is MARPOL? What does it stand for? And what does it allow and disallow? Um. Ooh, sorry. I'm not sure of the details of all of MARPOL, but specifically MARPOL, which is a, an International Marine Pollution Act, um, specifically Annex 5 is the prevention of plastic pollution from ships. And what it bans is the dumping of any type of plastic pollution from ships in our world's oceans. And it is an international act. That's wonderful. Do you know that when it was passed, I think it's 86, maybe? I believe it was 87. We're close, and we're going to look it up. Yes. But that's a good act. I'm glad it it passed. As far as this issue, it's such a huge, mind-boggling issue. What do you think we can tell people that they can do to help reduce this this problem in the ocean? Well, it's funny that you use the term reduce, because one of the things we preach all the time are the three R's. It's really the simple things that people can do every day, the reduce, reuse, and recycle. You know, think of reusable versus disposable. Recycle as much as possible. Um, Try to reduce your waste stream. 
Also, get involved in beach cleanups. Beach cleanups, street cleanups, stream cleanups, river cleanups, you know, all of that has the potential of reaching the ocean. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be a beach or reef cleanup. You can clean up any area, and that's, in a way, going to be preventing marine debris from occurring. Um, other ways that folks can get involved really just become knowledgeable about the issue. As you mentioned, there is a lot of confusing information out there in the media, the patch, what plastics do, whether or not they biodegrade, how big the you know area is in the North Pacific, can you walk on it, can you see it? Um, there's a lot of confusing information. You know, go to a reliable source, learn about the issue, and then tell others about it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today and being a, a big advocate for working on this marine debris issue. Not a problem. Thank you. You're listening to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock. And the first segment you just listened to earlier was an interview with Carrie Morishigi with the NOAA Marine Debris Program. And she talked a little bit about what the Office of Marine Debris does within NOAA and the type of research that is needed to keep moving this issue forward. But we're going to take a little detour right now, actually, um, way down the coast to Southern California, where I have Marcus Erickson and Anna Cummins from the Algalita Marine Research Foundation. Um, Marcus and Anna, you're live on the air. Hi, Marcus here. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Nice to have you here. So um, just a quick recap. We've had Charles Moore on the show in the past talking a lot about the big issue in the Pacific Ocean and the research that the Algalita Marine Research Foundation has been doing. But I wanted to hear a little bit about some of the work you and Anna have been doing, starting with last year when you set across in a non-traditional sailcraft across the Pacific o Ocean. Can you tell us a little bit about the junk raft and the work you were doing while sailing across the Pacific? Uh, sure. So, so Anna and I, on our last uh, research expedition more than a year ago, we saw that in just 10 years, the amount of plastic waste floating in the middle of the North Pacific gyre had doubled by, by volume. And we were finding plastic trash inside fish. So we decided then to do this, this stunt to build a, a Contiki-style raft out of 15,000 plastic bottles and float across Pacific from Long Beach, California to Waikiki uh, in Hawaii. And we did just that. It was a, it was a raft made from 15,000 bottles, uh, 30 sailboat masts uh, lashed together to make a deck, and a, a Cessna 310 aircraft, the fuselage and airplane, all of it literally tied together. And we set sail June 1st last year, and that began a, an 88-day odyssey um, uh, floating across the Pacific. Uh, we outran three hurricanes, <laughs> and we made some interesting observations along the way. What are some of the observations you made? Well, um, halfway across, as we were running out of food, we, we began fishing for sustenance, and we caught one fish called a rainbow runner. Now, this is one that um, uh, you'll see in fish markets around the world. You'll see it in menus in Hawaii, for example. And we, we caught the fish. We opened its stomach out of curiosity and found 17 particles of plastic and, and nothing else. So 
and, and these fish, it was you know, surprising to see trash in the fish that we're trying to eat in the middle of nowhere, halfway to Hawaii. But what, what's interesting is that fish they have, a, they have a big mouth and a very small uh, a sort of valve with the small intestines. So these plastic particles go in their bodies, and they just sit there in their stomachs for a, a long time until the fish grows bigger and can pass them. So these plastic particles, we know from other algal research that plastics have this ability to absorb all kinds of pollutants like pesticides and oil drops from cars and PCBs, things already in our oceans, and in very high concentration stick to plastics. So you have this stuff inside fish that is potentially leaching these pollutants back into the fish's tissues and organs. And that's where the research is right now to figure out um, if those links are, are true. Interesting. I just, uh, the earlier interview we did was with Carrie Morishigi from the NOAA Marine Debris Program, and she echoed that same thing. The research needs to be done to find out about this transfer up the food web. So I'm hoping that we'll have some more information on that very soon. Now, coming back to this year, I understand you and Anna Cummins, another educator with Algalita Marine Research Foundation, have set out for another adventure to have more of a presence with the public in talking about the issue of marine debris. Maybe Anna can give us an overview of the junk ride this year. Let me give you Anna to talk about the junk ride. Here she is. All right. Hi, Jenny. Welcome. You're live on the air. (laughs) Thanks for having us. You bet. So what have what are some of the goals of the ride this year? Maybe you can give us a little bit of a background on the bicycle ride. I'm assuming you are pretty much near done at this point. Yeah, actually, we finished up last week. We crossed the border into, t- into Tijuana, which was the last leg of our journey. But our idea was to ride 2,000 miles from Vancouver, uh, Canada, down to Mexico to give 40 presentations along the way to schools, universities, organizations. And also, our, our, one of our primary goals was to give away samples that we collected out in the North Pacific Dire to educators and to legislators. So that was a tremendous success. We were able to meet with five mayors, including Gavin Newsom up in San Francisco, uh, spend 15 minutes or so talking about the gyre with him and hand him a sample. Uh, Because one of the reasons why this has been such a huge issue is it's the ultimate case of out of sight, out of mind. Very few people are able to see what's out there in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean. So we were able to bring that directly to people and show them what's happening out in our ocean. How are some of these community leaders reacting to this information? Well, what we're really seeing is that when people start to understand further the human health impacts of this debris, seeing images that we've shown um, legislators of plastic particles in the fish that you and I eat, coupled with the information that these particles are absorbing persistent organic pollutants, this really hits home when they can see that this trash is not just an aesthetic issue, um, it's not just unsightly, but it's actually entering the food chain. So we've seen along the entire West Coast a ripple effect of uh, cities trying to institute bans uh, or fees on plastic bags, uh, which is starting to catch on, but it's a very uh, slow process. What we'd love to see is national or at least statewide legislation um, banning some of these throwaway plastics. One of the stops along the way, you, you're, you participated in a medical study to find out about what toxins might be in your body and had some blood tests on. Can you talk a little bit about that and when you might find out the results? Sure, sure. So it's a project called Synthetic Me. We've been looking at, um, you know, the concept of synthetic sea, but we're now looking at how these plastics are entering the food chain. So one of the things that's, um, that's been shown with plastic particles is at sea they will absorb persistent organic pollutants like PCBs, DDT, pesticides, oil drops from our cars. 
these will stick to plastic, and now we know that fish are ingesting these plastic particles. So what we're looking at is finding out if these particles are now acting as a transport vehicle um, for these organic pollutants in the ocean into our food chain. So we're looking at this in two ways. One, we're going to do tissue analyses on these fish, these lantern fish, uh, that we know are eating plastic particles to find out if these chemicals are getting into their tissues. But we also took my blood up in Portland to do the same analyses on my body. Um, so we're looking at levels of PCBs, DDT, flame retardants, and some other pesticides um, in my body. Actually, I'm just starting to get the results back now. Um, so the next step will be to, you know, figure out where they fall on the national uh, average. Um, but flame retardants have been a big one. Here in California, we have some of the highest levels of flame retardants in our bodies in the world. Wow. So what we hope, hope with this is to show um, that there is a human health side of this plastic pollution out in the ocean. Excellent. Well, we'll be very uh, paying close attention to find out the results of that this year. Um, can you talk a little bit, is there anything happening in California right now in terms of legislation? You were mentioning you're hoping for a national, um, wi- a nationwide uh, effort here, but anything happening in California that uh, listeners might be able to stay in touch with and um, keep their eyes on? Yeah, well, there is, there is a proposal to have a statewide um, fee on plastic bags. Uh, there's been a recent shift with that. I think it's been pushed to a two-year initiative, um, but since we've been on the road for a while, I haven't been able to to track the progress. Um, listeners can go to Heal the Bay is an organization that we work with locally that's done a lot of work on legislation. So healthebay.org. Surfrider Foundation also engages in um, some advocacy and, and legislative efforts. So people can track that online. The best thing that people can do, though, is write to their legislators, write to their state senators, write to their local politicians, and let it be known that they support this legislation. Fantastic. What's been the best part of the whole ride this year? Um, well, there, there were a couple of highlights. Uh, one was having our junk raft um, displayed on the front steps of the state capitol in Sacramento. So that was pretty wonderful for us. You know, we would have never dreamed when we were building this raft a year ago that we would see it displayed in front of the capitol. Um, and then on a personal note, we got married on the coast of uh, Big Sur. Uh. Uh, <laughs> wearing plastic bag outfits. I was wearing a dress by actually by a Santa Barbara designer, Deanna Cohen. And Marcus wore a plastic bag vest that she had also designed. A local artist who's doing some wonderful things with plastic materials. Fantastic. Um, so that was a personal highlight for sure. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing the news. <laughs> Thank you. How can folks stay tuned to your work with Algalita? Absolutely. Um, people can go to algalita.org, that's A-L-G-A-L-I-T-A dot org, to find out more about some of the current research. Our founder, Captain Charles Moore, is at sea as we speak. Um, he's uh, on his longest voyage yet to the North Pacific Gyre. So people can follow that um, that journey as it goes along. They can even ask questions directly, and they can learn about our upcoming projects to the North and South Atlantic Gyre through algalita.org. Fantastic. Anna and Marcus, thank you so much for sharing your time today with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for covering this issue. You bet. Take care. Take care. Bye. Craig Strang, who is 
is with the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, California. And Craig led a session today um, on ocean literacy and where we're going in the next few years, um, getting it into classrooms across the United States. So Craig, if you wouldn't mind, would you mind giving us an overview of today's session? Well, today's session had a couple of different purposes. One was to introduce the participants to the finally final version of the Ocean Literacy Scope and Sequence for grades K through 12. Um, that is a document that's comprised of 28 conceptual flow diagrams. Uh, there are four conceptual flow diagrams for each of the seven ocean literacy principles, one for each grade band, K through 2, 3 through 5, 6 through 8, and 9 through 12. So we've been working on that uh, um, material for almost three years now, and it was very exciting to be able to introduce that final version to people who have been waiting for it and uh, no doubt will put it to good use. And the second purpose of the session was to move into the next phase of the ocean literacy campaign, and that is to start conducting uh, widespread professional development for teachers and for informal educators based on the ocean literacy framework that we've been working on for the last three years. Uh, so we had participants focused for most of the day on designing professional development according to um, some research-based lessons learned, best practices, and uh, uh, well-regarded strategies that, uh, that we know will work with teachers and other educators. How do you feel education and the types of work that you're doing with ocean literacy contribute to the greater goal of ocean conservation in the long run? Well, I think the ocean literacy campaign is um, largely focused on creating a, a, a better educated, quote, ocean literate population uh, that is really, um, that really understands the need to protect the ocean and to use ocean resources in a sustainable way. So uh, I think all of us that have been working in ocean literacy for all these years at, in NMEA, and COSI and National Geographic Society and NOAA and the College of Exploration and dozens of other organizations, all of us are mostly dedicated to ocean conservation and really wouldn't be doing this work uh, unless the ultimate purpose was to convince people that ocean resources need to be protected. With the current situation in California in regards to the economics and the threats that the education system is facing in California. What are the biggest hurdles that we're going to be facing in the next few years to be able to bring in some of this content into the classrooms? Well, classrooms are, um, are a, a tough environment right now. And our school systems in California, right here where the NMEA conference is being held, but certainly across the country, are beleaguered and underfunded and uh, facing significant challenges as a result of the economic crisis, but also as a result of a couple of decades of neglect, uh, even during good economic times. So I think that the general um, uh, difficult state that our school's in is really the biggest barrier, the biggest challenge that we have to getting ocean literacy as part of the mainstream curriculum. Beyond that, um, I really think that, that the mainstream science community 
um, needs to be made aware of the ocean literacy framework. And, and I think there is growing awareness, not just from those of us uh, working on the ocean literacy campaign, uh, but in the scientific community and in the education community, that the ocean plays a very important role in climate change and in all of our Earth systems. Um, so at the same time that, that we are poised with some new resources, uh, the ocean literacy scope and sequence and the, and the ocean literacy framework, there's also a growing recognition that ocean sciences education is increasingly important. So I think that, um, that there are many barriers and many challenges, but we're finding ourselves in the right place at the right time to make significant inroads in the, in the next three to five years. That's great. Is there anything that families and community leaders and other education institutions beyond what we discussed today help to support this effort and push for more ocean education in classrooms? Well, ocean literacy is really for all people, all citizens, not just for kids in schools. Um, And so I think that communities and parents and families play a huge role both in educating their own children and their own community members, but also in letting school officials know that this is an important element of what they feel a child's well-rounded education would include. Um, So I think that the, the public historically in the United States has a lot to say about what kids learn in schools, and we have a very decentralized education system Um, state to state, county to county, school district to school district, um, individual parent groups, PTAs, and school boards um, really have a great deal of influence on the content that's presented to their children. So I think reaching out to the public um, through through the media, through public events, through community events, um, working especially in underrepresented communities, uh, is is probably one of the most important aspects of the ocean literacy campaign going forward into the future. Thanks so much for spending just a few moments for us with us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Craig Strang is the dire- uh, director at the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, California. He's also a board member on the National Marine Educators Association and also a leader in the Ocean Literacy Network. My name is Felicia Moore, I'm a professor of science education at Teachers College, Columbia University. Uh, it is very important for students to learn about the ocean, and even with my own learning, I did not realize how much the ocean has impacted my life and how much I impact the ocean. And I think at very young ages, from kindergarten through middle school through high school, just having an awareness of the world, the ocean, and its influences is something that everybody needs to know about. Um, for me, as an educator, it's important for me to be able to know these connections so that I can teach future teachers and they can teach their students. And for me, it seems more of a continuation of students just learning more about the world around them, being more interested in knowing about science and its connections, and then being able to explain this and tell this to other people to also get them excited about science. So for me, the starting point for the ocean is just to know a little bit more of what we don't know. And as we continue to learn about processes in the sea, in the world, it just, to me, makes science that much more interesting and much more um, fascinating to know about. And also, for me, it piques my curiosity because, again, I don't know very much about the ocean. So I I just think this is just a really, really important thing for students to know about.
And you just listened to a short segment about ocean literacy with Craig Strang from the Lawrence Hall of Science and Felicia Moore, a professor at Columbia University who was uh, expressing her interest in ocean sciences being included in curriculum for students so they become more literate and, and knowledgeable citizens. So we've jumped around a lot today. Uh, this started off this show with marine debris and plastics. We've just got a little catch-up on ocean literacy efforts. I thought I would just define that scope and sequence thing. Um, scope and sequence is basically how students learn certain concepts. So before they can learn one thing and own that knowledge, they need to know the building blocks before that. And so it's this matrix of facts and points and how they learn um, these things so that it can be appropriately designed into curriculum. So I thought I would just define that a little bit because it's some education terminology. But we're going to take a a quick little break here, um, listen to some music before our last segment of the day with Grant Washburn. If you're tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents. And my name is Jennifer Stock. Today's show is a big potpourri of uh, different interviews that I've done in the last week while attending the National Marine Educators Association Conference. And we'll be back in just a little bit for the final segment. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with Grant Washburn, who is a surfer, legendary surfer, and also a filmmaker. And Grant talked to the National Marine Educators Association this morning about his experience surfing at the legendary Mavericks off of Half Moon Bay. So, Grant, thanks so much for taking a few moments to talk with us today. Thank you. So you started surfing in New Jersey. How did you make your way to California to surf? A very random college buddy who had a job out here and... As I was getting ready to graduate and finishing my resume, he said, oh, you should come with me. And I thought, well, the waves have to be better than they are over here. So that was the, without any research or knowledge and pretty much against the will of my parents, I <laughs> left and moved to California and I never came back. Ah. How did you find Mavericks? No one had heard of Mavericks when I, when I first came out here. And I for sure had no idea that there were big waves in San Francisco. I, I actually thought that like Southern California was the place for surfers and that you know I'd be getting leftovers up here. And uh, shortly after I moved here, which was 1990, Mavericks kind of came into the limelight. And so it was random. Um, And I wasn't really a big wave surfer, but I was always interested in big waves. So I went to check it out and didn't immediately jump right into riding it. I caught a couple on the edge, but it took years of, uh, you know, being around it before I was comfortable. And uh, I think, you know, I always was planning on sort of filming it because it was so amazing. I just wanted to show people you come back from it and you're like... (sighs) You can't believe these waves. And then, uh, yeah, slowly but surely, I became comfortable enough to start riding the, the big days. And you know, after five or ten years, I was, like, one of the main guys. I heard you talking earlier about planning for when Mavericks is going to be breaking. And I have to say, I think surfers are probably some of the best oceanographers around. How are some of, how do you plan out when you think the waves are going to be breaking? I heard you talking about all these different buoys and wave arrays and whatnot. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, the buoys are nice because that's actually, you know, data. That means they're, if, if you see it on the buoys, even the 600, 700-mile-out buoy, that's real. Um, but most of the uh, forecasting is, is uh, modeling. And so we're looking at the potential for a swell-generating storm sometimes 10 days before it even has formed, which is ridiculous. But, you know, to be honest with you, they aren't 
the maps are getting better. It's all satellite-generated wind stuff, and um, what you'll see is a basically a set of conditions developing that makes it conducive to creating a storm that will make waves. But you, you, So you're wishing for the cold front off Siberia to brush up against this other system over the Pacific and then turn into a swell-producing thing. And when there's no waves, we are pretty radical in how far out we will reach to find something to get our attention <laughs> and, uh, and try to force it into uh, making itself into a wave. Yeah, And so it's kind of funny that way, but it is really neat when it starts to happen the way you you are familiar with. And, and so we'll see patterns and they they are not annual even like 10 years at a time where you'll have a stretch where you just have the most perfect scenario and these storms form all in a row three in a row so every third day for 15 days is one of the best days of the decade and when that happens everybody knows we're lucky and it's special but then you know sometimes it's three or four years before anything even close to that happens again so it's um, having now been a kind of an old guy with a lot of you know 15 18 years of watching it it's really amazing that some years are so poor and then next year you could have three days in one week better than the previous five you know mm-hmm. like it's just all of a sudden it just it like rains it pours and so <laughs> so this year 2009 there was no contest right yeah and that's you know we were just talking about that it actually it wasn't hadn't didn't have anything to do with the waves we had some oh. really really great waves the organizers didn't have sponsors at the time that the swells came and then when they did get their sponsors they didn't have any swells and then their waiting period ended and we did have a few more swells so um it's there's a bunch of extra logistical nightmares to trying to run an event and um you know they seem to have a really hard time giving mother nature enough room to let it happen but um, the surfers always score either way so that's what i was gonna say you guys are probably still out there anyway right oh yeah and that's what's funny is uh, you know people always ask the question like oh how do you train for this event well you don't you don't care because you're actually training for the all the events which is any swell event any time the waves are big all these guys are prepared to go surf the waves anytime and yeah. it has nothing to do with the event. And so, um, you know, you don't train for the event at all. <laughs> so back to the scene of where you're going out, you start in Half Moon Bay. How do you get out to Mavericks? It's a pretty long paddle. How far offshore is it? Yeah, it's about a quarter mile off the rocks, but it's about a half mile off the beach. So you either go around the north side of the rocks or the south side of the rocks, and then you have to paddle a long way from there out to the, where the waves are breaking. So um, neither way is easy. Uh, it's It the does commitment. sort of filter it out a bit. Yeah, you know, there's there's waves breaking over rocks, so you can, you're not likely to really get killed on the paddle out, but you could wreck your surfboard, and you could certainly get hurt. And a lot of guys are turned back before they even get near the main break because of that. And on a big day, um, probably half the people, even the best guys, get denied or break a board trying to get out. That That's... That's sort of par for the course. So what's on your mind while you're paddling out, taking it all in, watching the waves, watching other people around you? What, what are you thinking about? Well, sometimes it can be really serene. You, you can get, you can kind of sneak off that first bit where you jump off the beach and you have to clear some rocks. And if you do, it's pretty much blue water and kind of an open paddle. And it's a long paddle, so you have some time to just, you know, I don't know, your mind wanders for sure. Sometimes, uh, especially when I was younger, I get real, like, you know, thinking a lot about the surf. As you get older and you're more comfortable and you've been out there more, you you think about other things. It's not it's just sort of like you know being in traffic or something where your head just wanders and you think about something different. Um, but it's it's nice. It's nice, especially now with our you know never-ending news cycle and all this connection and stuff, to be able to disconnect and be out there and just just paddle around. Nice. So we you're out there, you get your first wave, and you look down, and what's going on then? Yeah, the excitement starts, uh, yeah, before the wave comes. Uh, you know, we, we position ourselves next to the takeoff spot, but usually don't sit right in it because you want to 
be able to get away from there if it's not the kind of wave that you want. So the, the takeoff area is a shallow spot, well offshore, and it's very deep all around it, which is a safe spot. So you kind of sit like sort of in the on-deck circle, and when you feel like it's your turn and you feel like you know the hot hand or whatever, you run out there and stand on home plate. And when you're on home plate, you're going to get thrown through the air or you're going to ride the wave. There's no getting off of it or turning back. So there's some anticipation and there's you know getting your heart rate low and being prepared and then when you make the choice it's actually not as the wave arrives it's before that so you choose to get on the field and it's it is like like maybe like a basketball court where you run out to the middle of the floor and when you're in the middle of the floor you can catch the wave and if you're not in the middle of the floor you can't Mm -hmm. but anywhere on the floor is danger so Mm -hmm. you're sitting on the sidelines carefully waiting and then you run out there the wave comes in and basically just scoops you up so you're basically stationary and another thing that people don't know is as the wave approaches shore it's pulling the water away from the coast it's uh it's it's drawing off the reef and so you basically go backwards even though you're paddling towards the beach you're being drawn towards the wave so you're you're if you're wearing a gps your gps would show that you're going backwards right. your uh, speed over the water would be considerable because you're paddling fast so the water's going by your board and you're moving but you're not actually getting away from the uh-huh. wave and then the wave sucks you up and then um you know gravity is what sets you free and you need to be going straight down to get that to break out of that uh you know that flow of water that's getting sucked up the wave and as you get to a plane you become free of the friction and you start to skip along the surface and that's when you're surfing and we want to go straight down for about 10 or 15 feet to get enough speed to outrun it and Uh and once that happens it's actually really really fun so you you have this little anticipation if you did it really well it's so easy that you feel like you cheated and the thing just sweeps you up and you just control all that energy and it's just as smooth as could be but the slightest mistake and everything goes wrong all at once just in a million ways and it becomes a different ride i was gonna say the skill set for this has got to be intense i mean how many mistakes have you made to get to where you know what to do and i'm sure mistakes still happen and wipeouts happen so how do you get to that skill set it must be really hard for people to to do this well for sure you want to work up to it i don't think anybody jumps into big waves you know you wouldn't be able to so you need to you know it could be equated to golf or playing an instrument you know if you just pick it up you're going to be terrible (laughs) you need to practice you need to do you know swing small play mini golf you know (laughs) play one string before you play the 10 string 12 string whatever Um, you need to work up to it surfing in small waves is a good way to get used to the you know the dynamics of the sport all of us were when we were little kids surfing little waves and getting familiar with that and then that's also a good time to wipe out <laughs> because yeah. the stakes aren't as high if you make a lot of mistakes in a wave like mavericks you will get hurt and you might get killed so we can't make a lot of mistakes and that that's really the trick to it is being smart enough to you know do it in a way that doesn't t- make you vulnerable to those kind of things and make your mistakes when you're practicing on smaller waves and don't play those games on the big day Excellent. So um, one thing you brought up during your talk, it was about the outlaw of jet skis within the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary this year. Um, and I believe there's they allow for some permitted use for safety. How has the surfing community um, reacted to this this whole issue? How, do, how are you guys feeling about that? Well, there was a lot of discussion. I, I have friends that are really it polarized the community for a, for a large degree. You know, they, there were people that hated it didn't want to see any jet skis at all and then there's other people that really embraced it and either put a lot of money into it or a lot of time and effort and really wanted to see it allowed and um you know i was kind of always in the middle in a way because as a filmmaker these are great tools 
and as you know someone who doesn't want to die there's a chance that you could be rescued if if uh, you know you get in trouble but that doesn't excuse it it's like oh let's let's all be reckless so we can save ourselves with jet skis i mean that you know in a way the jet skis did sort of up the ante on people taking chances because guys especially some younger guys would look at it and be like oh there's a jet ski so now i can mm-hmm. be completely foolish with my attempts which that's not good for anybody and and i also showed the part where the jet ski gets hit by the wave so um i know and most people who are familiar with big wave surfing know that jet ski can't save you in a worst case scenario right. there's nothing there that's going to help you so if you're putting a lot of uh you know investment in that you're making a mistake it's not going to be able to bail you out in the worst case scenario and secondary you know a lot of people who would not be out in big waves are going to be out there on these jet skis because it's super fun and you don't need to be a surfer to ride around on the waves and actually what we saw when the jet skis became more uh, you know, part of it was people just using them as motorcycles and jumping waves and stuff. And that's not fun for a surfer to be around. And there's not really any way to say, oh, we're using it as a water skiing tool. You can't drive your boats near us. You know, the boating law says if someone's swimming or paddling, they have right away that the boats need to stay away. But if you're driving around water skiing, the other guy can just drive around. And that's what happened is people just come out and drive on the waves with their jet skis. And there's no shortage of people that want to do that. And there's yeah. very few people that want to ride big waves by catching the waves with their hands so it controlled itself that way but when the jet skis started coming out you have people that don't even surf at all having a great time doing donuts all over the waves and it just you know ruins it for a surfer it annoys the bird watcher makes a mess and you know the surfers basically said this is no good either so even the guys that were really pro jet ski have no interest in seeing that be what's going on so well, good, good, good answer. Uh, good to hear. I just had no idea where they were on it, so it's great. Um, what the, something else that came up for me, I realized, is the whole new issue of ocean energy and potential use of power, getting the power from the waves. How do you feel about that? Is that an emerging threat for surfing on the coast? No, I don't think it's much of a threat for surfing. <laughs> uh, there is so much energy in those waves, and I think it's it's really I think about storage right now. The energy. You know, the generating, uh, there's so much power, even, you know, just a couple of ways, there's so much in it. It's just how do you capture it? How do you store it? How do you transport it? And that, that stuff that has, you know, less to do with, with the wave energy and more to do with batteries. And as that gets, you know, perfected or whatever, approved, it's going to be more viable. I think right now there's a couple that they were going to do around here, and I'm not sure if they're doing it anymore. Um, some of them aren't going to affect surfing at all. Some of them can be used in, instead of a jetty or something else like that, so it could buffer an area that was going to get impact. And you know, but mostly, I think they can do it with tide. They can do it with wave action. It can be done way offshore, and you know, it's just a matter of transporting that energy and making use of it. But for any surfer, I'll tell you, man, there's tons of power yeah. out there. I think there's some engineers actually that were started out surfing and are now doing some of this engineering. So you got into filmmaking, and um, where are some of your films in the Bay Area that people might be able to see? Uh, well, we just had that film festival, so it's going to be a while. Next next June, look for the Half Moon Bay Big Wave Festival. It's pretty okay. cool. We had some old movies. Greg Knoll came. It was a really, really good um, you know, whole week of, of films, and we did get some money for the Marine Mammal Center and the Peninsula Open Base uh, Land Trust, which is really a couple of cool things that we did, uh, and the school there, too. And it's it's fun, you know, because big wave surfing is such a neat thing, and it attracts so much attention. It's really awesome to give something back, and it, capturing it for... You know, to share is really, I guess, what any filmmaker is doing. But, you know, when I first was surfing um, big waves, that it's almost the first thing that occurs to you is, man, I wish I could take that home because you want to see it over and over. And surfers are huge uh, with the images. And, you know, I don't know if there's anything 
even remotely as related to that, except for maybe porn. Um, <laughs> I'm just guessing, but you know, surfers will sit there and look at surf pictures and surf videos forever, and we just are so fascinated by that. We're so image, uh, you know, conscious and driven and whatever. And, and for me, I just I love doing that. I, it's almost more fun for me to catch the picture of a good wave than it is to catch a wave, and that's. You know, as I get older, it's going to be even easier. I always remember, oh, I'll be 100 years old. If I could just be out there with a camera, I'm happy. And so that makes it, you know, something I can always do. But being able to bring that, you know, magic best day of the decade into the, you know, lab and put it out on a DVD or show it on television is, is really pretty neat. And, uh, you know, so we're lucky that we have that. And so many people are inspired by it. So you feel pretty good. I love watching big wave movies. It's so awesome. Um, where haven't you surfed that you'd like to? Um, well, Chile is the place I like to go. Um, they get a lot of big waves down there. I don't actually like tropical zones. I've got some like Viking blood and white pale skin, so um, a true I, Californian. Yeah, I don't tan well, um, <laughs> but there's tends to be bigger waves away from the equator, and for the most part, in the zone that's about where we are in San Francisco, Cape Town, um, part of Chile. Um, that's a nice climate. You know, not too cold, not too warm. Um, the ocean is pretty moderately, you know, it's not too cold. Again, you have a wetsuit that will allow you to be able to be comfortable out there. But if you don't wear a wetsuit and in Hawaii, you're going to get cold. The wind comes up. It's not 90 degree water. It's 72 and you're, you get cold, you know, yeah. but in a wetsuit, you can be really comfortable for a long time. So Chile's my spot. Yeah. Hopefully I'll get to go there soon. Right on. So you've been in the ocean for many, many years, ever since you were a little kid and you're probably like most of us have this incredible passion for the ocean. What's your message to young people about protecting the ocean for the future? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because as you, as you age, you see the changes and it's, you know, that's something there's not perspective when you're a kid. It just seems like everything will be the same forever. And I think all people, you know, that that's something that we are as a species waking up to, wow, we're changing things or this is different. I mean, sea level is going to rise and these surf spots are changing and, and uh, the condition, the acidity of the ocean and the, you know, the ecosystems and all that stuff is changing. You know, the, the earth is going to scratch its itches and it's going to go on. And it's just a matter of how long we get to play there and who's with us. And so, you know, passing it on, I think any kind of excitement and interest and passion that people have, kids have towards that, I think it should be fostered, you know, because that's going to make it easier for the rest of us to enjoy it for longer. If it, if we all sort of keep our secret spots secret, they're more likely to get destroyed more quickly. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty much an optimist. I think we can rebound. The ocean can rebound. Um, we just need a little bit of uh, foresight and, you know, some, some inspired people to help it happen. Excellent. Well, I'm sure your filmmaking is a big part of that. But i um, been talking with Grant Washburn, a surfer. He spoke today to the National Marine Educators Association. Thank you so much for taking some time today to share and hope to see your film next year. Yeah, cool. Thank you very much, too. Thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents, a big mix of different topics and ocean-related information. Um, I will actually have to do a replay next month. I'm going to be out of town, but we will have another Ocean Currents show for you then. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and stay cool.
Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.